0: Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, mad props to the parents out there having to do their jobs and serve as substitute teachers during the pandemic. There have to be anxious moments. In this talk, author Madeline Levine offers practical advice for managing that process. Her latest book is Ready or Not, preparing our kids to thrive in an uncertain and rapidly changing world. The work highlights how some common parenting practices are setting up children to fail and offers healthier alternatives. If your laundry list these days includes balancing pandemic-sized stress and a healthy lifestyle and helping impressionable children do the same, listen in. This talk offers a wealth of helpful information. Madeline Levine is a psychologist with over 35 years of experience as a clinician, consultant, educator, and author. She is a co-founder of Challenge Success, a project at Stanford University's Graduate School of Education. The program is designed to address the fact that we live in an anxiety-inducing era of human civilization for parents and children, and the impact of our high-pressure focus on grades, test scores, and performance. She gave this Town Hall Seattle talk on August twenty-sixth. Town Hall's Candace Wilkinson Davis moderated the event.
1: I would like to do three things, really, tonight. I would like to talk about um, levels of anxiety before this started, meaning COVID, um, because I think it's important to know the trajectory we were on before we were hit with a pandemic and a um, issue of school closing and an economic collapse and all of that. Um, And then I want to talk about what's happening and what I'm seeing clinically um, in terms of our relationships with our kids in terms of our own anxiety, in terms of our children's anxiety and our relationship anxiety. I'd like to talk a little bit about the decisions around school, which um, will be the toughest decisions I think parents will have to make in, I don't know, in their lifetime. Um, And then I'd like to talk about protective factors, what we do know. Uh, is helpful to kids under uh, conditions of extreme uncertainty and stress. Um, and, and and I want to make one point here. I just wrote a piece for Romper uh, maybe ten days ago, and I've been talking about anxiety and kids and parents since since COVID struck. And I and I think the kinds of messages that have been out there were really really helpful in the beginning. I also suspect that you know all of them by now. So, um, you know, take care of yourself, self-care and uh, deep breathing and don't get too anxious. Um, They're all true. But I also think people are sort of on the verge of feeling that those things are not helping anymore. Um, the idea of what self-care is when you're trying to work a job and you're trying to take care of two or three children under the age of eight um, and you're food insecure or you don't know whether to send your kids back to school. My telling you deep breathe is um, useful, but you probably need more than that. And that will come under the, the last section on protective factors. All right. So what was happening? With anxiety in our country before COVID struck, um, I wrote a book called Ready or Not. Came out about a week before the country shut down. Um, it wasn't that I knew anything about uh, having a um, pandemic, but it was clear that um, the skills that had been so much a focus for parents, which was academic achievement um, and you know good grades, good colleges, all of that were changing in terms of what um, businesses, schools were looking for in kids. And that was true whether I was looking at um, Google or General Motors or um, a financial institution, across the board, there were new um, criteria for, for hiring kids. And they were not really as aligned with our old notions as people thought they were. So I was interested in writing about what are what are schools, what are businesses looking for in kids, um, and how we might think about changing the kinds of things we value. That was the idea behind the book, um, and and it was about learning how to cope with uncertainty. And we are in probably the most uncertain time in my rather long lifetime at this point. So rates of anxiety were going up before this even hit. And by the way, they were going up not only for kids, which gets a lot of press, but they were going up for you guys, for parents as well. Um, Depending on whose research you look at, one out of three kids or one out of five kids um, or one out of four kids, but the number is in there was suffering from an anxiety disorder. But so were their parents. Um, So the rate of anxiety had really accelerated in the last decade or so, and I think that was partly because of the degree of uncertainty before COVID struck, uh, uncertainty about what kinds of jobs were going to be valued, what kind of education was going to be valued. Um, So we were on a trajectory for the highest rates of anxiety ever in this country uh, before the pandemic. And, um, so we've gone into a pandemic with extremely elevated rates of anxiety. And I want to talk about anxiety for a couple of minutes. Um, anxiety that is appropriate, proportional, manageable is essential for growth, right? You, I'm sure everybody in the audience has had the experience of having an anxiety provoking, experience and mastering it, right? Um, The last talk I gave before it was, I'm in San Francisco, by the way, before everything was shut down, I was in an audience at 500 people at one of my local private schools. And, and I asked how many people in the audience had never had their heart broken, just because I felt like it. And um, out of 500 people, Uh, one person had never had their heart broken. I thought that was interesting. Um, and, And what that question is about is, look, life is challenging, right? And in order to have the 499 of us sitting there, in spite of having had broken hearts somewhere along the line in our life, you had to have had a number of challenging experiences before that, so that when you were 14 or 16 or 26, whenever your heart got broken, you hurt, you fell down, you picked yourself up, you went on. And how does that happen exactly? Um, It happens because we have these titrated experiences, experiences we can handle along the way. So the mistake that I was seeing parents making This is pre-COVID was they were so busy protecting their children from disturbing experiences that their kids didn't develop the muscle that ultimately would be needed to be able to handle something that if you all remember what that felt like, it felt pretty devastating to have your heart broken. So the parent who would say something in my office like um my kid didn't get invited to the popular kid party so i'm going to have an even better party for my kid was not preparing that child to manage the more difficult disappointment in life and i'd say right now we are just in a period of intense training wheels for disappointment i think one of the things that will come out of this is that um, kids will actually be much more adept at handling challenge than they have been before because they've met challenge. And and one of the messages that I think is extremely important to give kids, I'll get into this in more detail, but the idea that we're going to do this, we can do this, you can do this, is an extremely important one. Because what I was seeing before was the message was in many different ways you're too fragile it's too disappointing it's too scary all the moms who had a kid who were afraid of a dog and so the mom would do whatever she could and it was usually the mom to not have the kid experience the anxiety of walking in front of the dog so she would um drive the car and avoid the dog and it, that kind of became something in my practice about don't avoid the dog, because if you keep avoiding the dog, you're never going to learn that you actually can walk past a, a barking dog. So I think those experiences have been underestimated for kids. And I think to the extent to which we keep um, protecting them, and I'll, uh, I'll give you one more example of that. Um, I have a kid, had a kid in my practice who um, was afraid to sleep alone. And, you know, full disclosure, I I raised three sons. They're all millennials. And um, one of my kids ended up sleeping on the floor in my bedroom, I don't know, till he was six. Uh, did I think that was terrible? Did I ruin him? Absolutely not. But in general, you know, you want your kid to be able to soothe themselves, right? And so these parents, every night, one of them went down and slept with the kid, and so he didn't have to experience the distress. And then he was invited to a sleepaway party, and um, they get a call in the middle of the night, you know, your son's really upset, please come get him, and they go and get him, right? So again, he doesn't learn how to manage that. And then this is a case I saw over a long time. <laughs> and um, then he goes to sleepaway camp and uh, there's another phone call. You know, your kid is not doing well, come get him and they come get him. And you can see how the, I call it accumulated disability. You can see how each one of these opportunities for self-management is missed. And I think most of us know, when our kid is really absolutely incapable. But I think we also feed into that eventual incapability by not being clear with the message that I think you can handle this. I think there is great value in considering bravery um, part of your family. We're a brave family um, because every one of us has been through things that have been frightening for us and we have managed to overcome them for the most part um there are things i still get anxious about there are things everybody still gets anxious about but for the most part you absolutely need practice in overcoming anxiety so that was all before um covid was there was a tendency for parents to um Because anxiety rates were going up, they were protecting their children, but we were also protecting ourselves from the anxiety we felt when our kids were anxious. So it was kind of like a deal we made with our kids is like, if you're anxious, I won't push you because it makes me anxious when you're anxious. And that becomes a cycle of um, decision making by anxiety, not by thoughtfulness. And, and, And that's that's not. In anybody's best interest. The other thing I want to say about anxiety is it's really, really important to understand that anxiety has a strong genetic component. You know, my field, there are some things we know about, there are a lot of things that we're just learning about in psychology, but there have been enough twin studies. That look at the genetic component of anxiety disorders, and there's an expression we like, which is, genetics loads the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. And about 50% of an anxiety disorder, 50% of the variance, um, is about genetics. So some of your kids will be more likely to be anxious, and some will be less likely to be anxious. And if there's anxiety in the family the odds of that child being anxious certainly go up. So, it, and, and right, mom's anxious, the kid is anxious, then you have not just genetics, but you also have an environment that cultivates anxiety. And how does it do that? It's because avoidance results in temporary relief, but it actually reinforces the anxious response. Avoidance results in temporary relief but it reinforces anxiety um, and in that sense anxiety becomes contagious right um, We pay attention to the anxious child uh, we support the avoidance um, I think it's in this last book I have my, my favorite story is this young girl who didn't like sauce and she was kind of phobic about sauce on her food. And uh this was in her adolescence and when she'd go someplace for dinner, mom would call up and say, you know, thank you so much for having my daughter, but she, you can't put any sauce on her uh, food." So you know her invitations kind of went down and then she went to college and if you all remember the food in college, although it's a lot better than our day, um, there was too much sauce for her and it became an issue so, as the psychologist, what do we do when somebody's anxious or phobic? We expose them, um, and it and it may not be a popular point of view. Um, to my kids, are lawyers, and when they became lawyers, there were trigger warnings in their classes. Um, the problem with trigger warnings, it, it for me as a psychologist, is that it reinforces the fear. Um, in the office, if you bring me a child who's phobic, I will probably work just as much with you as I will with the kid. It used to be we would always do what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, with the kid It's an hour a week. Um, the, the, the research at this point is clear that the best way to treat kids who are anxious is to involve their family in it. And I think that's true. Um, because there is a way in which, you know, anxiety just kind of does feel contagious. And so in that sense, we have to watch our language around COVID. Um, we have to sort of be careful in terms of our child's state of understanding things. A um, mom recently said, uh, her eight-year-old says, um, can we put a play date down on the calendar i want i want to see george as soon as this is over my friend george and the mom says okay i'll put that down but you know that's if the world is still here now for a teenager that might have been amusing it was terrifying for an eight-year-old because an eight-year-old has no capacity to understand irony so we want to and i'll talk a little bit about how i see talking to each age group but we wanna be aware developmentally of what a child understands because we're doing a lot of explanation. There's a lot of talking going on. What do I think we need to navigate through this pandemic? Um, I think I think there's a lot of things we need to navigate through it. Um, one is being well aware of our kids developmental stage. The other is um, totally understanding in your bones that, Nobody has the answer yet. In the beginning, when I was asked to speak, I would often be asked to speak about best practices. What are the best practices? And who knows? So, you know, I've been a psychologist for 40 years. I've been through tremendous numbers of changes in this country, but never through something like this where kids are home all the time, where isolation is such a big issue, and where Um, we're talking about matters of life and death. So when you listen to to people like me or read things that we write, bear in mind that nobody knows your family as well as you do. So you can listen to the advice, but bear in mind that all of us are kind of taking what we've learned over a lifetime uh, or a degree or whatever and doing our best to apply it just like you're trying to apply what you know around the decision about whether or not to send your kid back to school or not. So that's just a little bit of a caveat, um, that even experts I get together with a group every other week and we try and figure out what's going on. But at the end of the day, I would urge you to trust your gut. Um, because every family's different and every kid is different. So for some kids, Going back to school is absolutely mandatory, right? Um, They have parents who can't provide at home. Two parents are working or a single parent. Um, They have to go back to school. And then you have another household where it's an entire single – you don't have a single parent. You know, you have two parents – And you have the resources and you can set up a whatever outside, bring in a tutor. There is no one size fits all around these kinds of decisions now. So I think we have to learn how to sit with uncertainty. And here's the problem. The problem is that the brain really hates uncertainty. And the reason why I say there's never been anything quite like this before is that When people look at other times when people have had very difficult trauma in their life, um, they're looking at things like uh, a hurricane or a storm, you know, that kind of thing, which is time limited. This is now, what are we in, five or six months at this point. This has become chronic. Your brain, let me just digress for a minute. Your brain is a prediction machine. That's what your brain wants to do. And if you think about what a normal day, remember the old days when things were normal, um, a normal day, your brain is making... A 1,000 predictions about how the day's going to go. Got to get up, what time you get up. One kid likes um, Cheerios, and the other kid likes oatmeal. You know where they go to school and what time they have to be there. When you pick them up, you know what exit they come out of. Uh, You know who hates lasagna and who loves lasagna for dinner. You, You know all of that. Imagine if you had to think through each and every one of those decisions, right? Where do I pick them up today? What time does school end? You know, it it would be impossible. So your brain is happiest when it can make predictions. Like I said, it's basically a prediction machine. We can't do that now. And our brains are very, very unhappy about that. Um, And because we can't make prediction, we're going to be anxious. That's what happens when you have to sit in uncertainty is people become anxious. And I think what you have to remember about this time is that the goal, from my point of view, the goal for the family is to get through this. Your goal is to try and get through this period of time with your family reasonably intact. It's not to get it perfect, it's not to have, you know, in the beginning we were doing all these checklists on chores and jobs and math and science and structure is important. I'm not saying structure is not important, but what's most important is getting through it as a reasonably intact family. And what does that mean? That means that if wake up time is eight and your teenager says, I'm not getting up before 830 or nine. The new wake-up time is 8.30 or 9. You're going to have other battles to fight. You don't want to die on the hill of things that are really not that important. Um, And don't read that as, you know, just do anything. But read it as you need flexible structure. I think flexible structure is really important in this time. Uh, Lower your bar. Nothing's going to be perfect. Um, Focus on your relationships because that's what counts, try and do something new. Um, And if you don't, don't feel bad about it. Like when this started, I said, oh great, I'm gonna learn how to play piano. And um, it's six months later and I haven't touched the piano that my kids used to play on. Um, So, okay, you know, you're gonna have to sit with, you're doing your best. um, And if you don't learn that language, if you don't play the piano, if you don't become an artist, um, that's perfectly fine, too. All the structure that we rely on for ordering our days is is gone. And so as we make up new structures, um, we're going to have a hard time putting integrating something brand new into, into that. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was um, you know the basics of getting through a difficult time this is very important for your kids and it's also important for you and you know what it is it's get a good night's sleep and eat well and get some exercise um, do some deep breathing try some meditation uh, and very importantly uh, think about doing something for somebody else And it's not just to be like a really good person, which is a nice thing to be, but we know that doing things for others makes us feel better. So it makes the other person feel better. It makes us feel, it's a twofer, right? So with your kids, figure out something that the family can do as we and not me. Um, You know, they always say, if you wanna go fast, go alone. And if you wanna go far, go with others. And since we can't go with our usual others, our work colleagues and our friends, uh, we go with our family. And I I think another thing that's helpful, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is um, to think about the narrative that you want to have at the end of this time. Um, There is a story that each of us and each of our children Will carry about what it was like, how we did, how we performed, what mattered to us, and you know that can be a family exercise to write a family story about what it was like. It's also a good individual exercise to think about um, what what you want to remember from this time and what your what you your legacy in a way you want your kids to remember about how you behaved in this time and how you did or didn't help them. Um, so I kind of like that exercise. Um, I think you also can uh help your kids by by being um structured enough, like I said, flexibly structured, by um staying away from catastrophic thinking, you know, um I'm concerned is very different than I'm terrified. And I think we have to watch our language um, and understand that this will end. This will end. Uh, when and how and the details of that are unknown at this point, but it will end. And the catastrophic thinking, which we get from the media all day, every day, um, is not helping any of us. I have. Um, an assistant who helps me and I don't, I don't read the paper. I don't watch the news at all. She comes in, she gives me the five minute uh, download on what's going on in the world. And that's really all I need. I figure at this point, um, when the election is settled, uh, when they get a vaccine, I'm going to know about it. And we do know that people who watch more media are far more likely to feel threatened than people who watch less media. So um, your kids on their computer or whatever all day, okay, That's fine. Uh, But not on the end of the world kind of stuff, not the doom and gloom scroll that so many kids are on. And not all day. Um, But they're going to be on more because that's their only connection uh, right now. And that's okay. so that those are some of the ideas on how you can cope. Uh, part of it is not being self-centered. Part of it is not being hypervigilant. Um, and part of it is keeping a sense of perspective. There's also, I think, an opportunity to model a couple things here. One of them is acceptance. Um, light, you know, we, what I keep thinking about with this is how long and how old. <laughs> How long I was under the delusion that uh, I was in control of things. And this is a real exercise in, actually, we're never totally in control of things. We do our best, but life just isn't like that. And um, I think it's a, a sobering experience in we're here. Uh, If we're fortunate, we're healthy and our families are healthy. And what do we want to do? It's a great time for pause and reset around values, around what really matters to you, what you want to pass on to your children, the values you want them to have. Those are the conversations that I think are important to have now um, that we have more time. So how do you have those conversations with your kids? The first thing is you listen, and I think listening is a fascinating thing. So a psychologist spends their career listening, and it becomes you know pretty easy for us after a while. But I think listening is one of the most underrated skills uh, people have. I think most of the time we'll ask our kid a question, and we're already formulating the response. You know, the kid will say. I want to go out. I'm going out. And we're saying you absolutely cannot go out before he's even or she's even finished her thought. I think the far better strategy is to listen. Tell me about why you want to go out. Um, Tell me what that would be like for the family. Ask questions. Um, After 40 years of being a psychologist, no kid has ever come into my office and said, you know, my parents, they just listen too much. No, you know, it's my parents never listen. It's a good opportunity to sort of get those listening skills up to speed. I think it's an important thing. Um, I said, you know, make sure they're eating, sleeping, playing, uh, having physical activity. I got an email from uh, a client today asking exactly how much physical activity um, because it was I'm in San Francisco, you know, and we are having a lot of smog and fire and ash and certain um, like, don't, don't dig down to that level of, you know, two hours a day, you have to be exercising. You want your kids moving and you want yourself moving. And if it's a bad day or they don't feel like it, that's okay too. Um, Discuss anxieties. You know, this started with my talking about anxiety. So talk about anxiety, but careful how those things get framed. Um, So, As I talk to parents, they tend to say things like um, you must be really scared to go back to school, which is not a great lead in um, because it sets the parameters already. It's about anxiety. Some kids are very anxious about going back to school and some kids are not anxious at all about going back to school. And some kids greatly benefited from not being in school. Uh, and not being bullied, and not having such a hard time in the classroom. So you want you, you want to be curious. Um, you want to leave that space so that your child feels free to discuss what their feelings are. Not, you know, and don't project your own anxiety because every parent in America is well, most parents in America are anxious about sending their children back to school. And I'll I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I said limit media. Um, And back to that idea of you've got this. You know, kid is teary or crying. Somebody called me today. You know, my kid couldn't sleep all night. And um, do I bring them into my room or don't bring them into my room? And I can't answer that for you I think you don't want to make a habit of regressive behavior are you going to see some regression in your children absolutely Um, you know we're seeing a lot of regression in adults around too much drinking Um, but you have at this stage in life it's so frustrating not to (laughs) be able to see you Um, my guess is it's a middle-aged audience And you've had a toolbox for coping with challenge in your life. This is, this is a lousy challenge. It sucks right now, but you have had other opportunities to deal with challenge. And I think part of your job is to go back and think about how you did that. Um, I lost a parent very young and it's when I started writing and that is in my toolbox of how to manage periods of high anxiety writing and reading so that's what i'm doing and as you know not playing the piano but it's a good time for you to think about what it is that soothes you what it is that um kind of refer not refurbish like renews you and circumstances are incredibly different. So for some of us, that may be, you know, laying on the couch and reading a book. And in different situations, that may be going into the bathroom, running the water and screaming. Um, But you have to figure out what is it historically that you've relied on to get through? And if that's not enough, and it's not enough for many of us, then we have to start thinking about what we could add to that toolbox. So reading and writing has always been my thing. Uh, I'm trying to add some meditative practice. I'm doing so, so with that. Um, but it's understanding that you need a, a reasonable set of tools to manage through this period of time. Okay. Um, so quickly I want to talk about how you talk to different age kids cause they don't know the age of your children or your age. Uh, if you have really young kids, less is more. Um, they don't need a whole explanation of uh, exactly what it is. You know, you use the language. They know. You Most four-year-olds know what are germs, and there are germs, and we're just being careful. They don't need to know grandma's in a high-risk group because she has obstructive pulmonary disorder, and we could kill her. No, none of that uh, for a five-year-old. Um, stay away from high-intensity words, um, maintain structure, and stay calm and direct. Uh, Young kids are not having the worst time. That's not the group that's having the worst time. Six to ten, these kids can start to think logically, so you can give them more logical explanation, a little bit more data. Um, As I said before, irony is not understood, so the kinds of things that... Adults sometimes use to blow up tension is not understood by kids in that in that age range. You know, limit limit the scary media um, and maintain your routine, but with flexibility. Kids who are really teenagers, 11 to 15 and 16 like that, it is a really hard time for those kids. And you you have got to lead with empathy. Um, They are missing what makes them feel good, which is being with their peers, what makes them grow and develop, which is learning from their peers, taking some risks, which hopefully are not too great, Um, graduating, thinking about college, uh, moving into high school, moving into college, moving into a different stage of life that's separate from parents, and here they are day in, stay out with their parents. They're having a really hard time. And because we are as well, I think sometimes it's tough to get the empathy going for them. But um, try and lead with that with your teenager who is probably not being particularly easy at this time. And then with older teens and emerging adults, which is where we're seeing uh, flare-ups of COVID because they're out partying or um, going to the beach or whatever it is they're doing. They need to be reminded because they, they are as a group concerned with other people. Um, They need to be reminded of, of they can't think about just themselves now. It's not just about them. And they have the capacity to do that. Then they, well, they can look very self-centered. In fact, they are not as narcissistic as really young kids. So that's just a quick, you know, summary of how to talk to different age kids. And I, and I think, You know, if you want a general thing to put on the refrigerator or whatever, I think you keep in mind that we have these four S's for how do you help children thrive in good times and in bad times. Um, So the four S's are safety, security, seen and soothed. Right. Kids need to feel safe. They need to feel secure. They need to be seen and they need to be soothed. Um, And I I think, depending on your child's uh, receptivity, it's a good time to to, if you're in your house pod to sit next to each other or have an arm around your kid um, or or talk to them about what makes them feel safer or what makes them feel soothed for one kid. I'll take a teenager as an example for a te- one teenager being soothed is being alone in their room on Instagram with their friends. That's soothed for a 15 year old. Soothed for a five year old is probably, you know, cuddling up in your lap while you or a four year old while you watch a show together. So you, you have to sort of weigh what it is you know about your child and also, you know, ask them um, what would be helpful to them. I think that the other thing to do with kids now is for us is to learn, to tolerate their distress. This, I started this talk by talking about what I called accumulated disability, how hard it has become for parents, given how um, competitive uh, the world has become in the world of kids. That was my other two books. It was about really, you know, there's more to life than just, competing for grades and competing for college entrance and stuff like that. And I think that was part of the reason why parents were accommodating to distress. And I think this is an opportunity for our kids to learn that they can handle things and for us to learn that our kids are probably more robust than we think they are. Um, So that goes back to the idea of um, This is a brave family. I think you can do it, honey. Go ahead. Give it a try. You know, you can, your kid can always come back to you. You can always come in afterwards and be helpful, but um, we call it the ZPD, the zone of proximal development. It's just outside of what your kid is comfortable with uh, where they're actually learning. In terms of going back to school, um, you can, you can read the piece I wrote in Romper. It's like, I don't know nobody knows. Um, it depends heavily on numerous factors, right? It depends on the spread of COVID in your community. If it's a high spread community, I think the idea of sending your kids back is very scary. And if I lived in that community, I wouldn't be doing that. If you have a community where things are reasonably under control, um, then it's a very different issue. And also, the school's um, transparency about what these issues are I think is is really critical. So community spread is really important. Um, where your own child is, I just said a couple minutes ago, some kids are okay at home and if there's resources, if community spread is high, if your kid uh, doesn't have any social developmental issues, you know for many middle and upper middle class kids Uh, nothing terrible is gonna happen to them if they miss five more months of social development. For less well-resourced kids, um, this is gonna be a big problem because they will not have access to mental health services, to teaching services, to tutoring, to the kinds of support that they need. And nothing is clearer in this country right now than the disparity uh, between the haves and the have-nots, the racial disparity, and um, what will happen to kids without resources who miss school that is going to be a big problem so those decisions that you make are based on your individual situation and also who's at risk you know kids it it seems that kids for the most part don't get very sick Um, but they can be vectors. And so if you're living in a house with somebody who's undergoing uh, chemo or an older parent with heart disease, um, that changes the calculus about how you think about your kid going back to school. Um, I think we are being asked to do something that we are completely unprepared to do we're not epidemiologists we're not virologists we're not school administrators our job was to raise decent kids right to have them be fair and loving and good kids and behave and uh, compassionate Um, it was never to make the kind of decision we're being asked to make now so if you're struggling with this um, you know I'm sorry, that's what people are struggling with. Those are the guidelines as I see it, you know, community spread, risk in the household, uh, and risk to your child's developmental trajectory. Um, Those are the ways I would think about it, and it's still a really hard decision. So I see that my time is up. Um, I think the last thing I would like to say is uh, one of the things that that makes this tolerable to me, is that there is a way to see opportunity in what's happening now. This period of time, like I said, this is training wheels for life's challenges. And I think if we think about the reality that to be good at anything takes practice, we are having a, I'd like to say a shitload, a boatload of practice right now in um meeting challenge so I keep a little diary you know this was really a, I had a fight with my kid um, I never fight with him this is a really big challenge for me what's going on um, it is an opportunity to to learn to meet challenge it's an opportunity to add to that toolbox of yours so It may be running, it may be physical activity for a lot of people. Um, It may be reading and writing like it is for me. It may be internal, it may be external. Um, See if you can come up with one other tool to add to your toolbox to help you get through this period of time. Um, And I also think it's a great opportunity to focus on the relationships that matter in your life and to uh, rethink things like values and purpose. Um, and to get involved in something that you and your family consider meaningful. And I see Candice is there. Hi, Candice. Hi. Hi.
2: (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much for that. Very interesting. Um, Definitely, I resonate with uh, your piano playing. <laughs> when we first went to the quarantine, I thought, oh, I, maybe I'll play the guitar. Yeah, uh, hey. I went, wow. but I went, yeah, it did not happen. Um, but I went to things that I was comfortable with, you know, that were comforting to me. So
1: and what, what was it for you?
2: Um, so I do like yarn work, um, crocheting needleworking, just like little, little things I can sit and do, yeah.
1: you know, Right, And for a lot of people, gardening has become a thing, cooking has become a thing, um, those were all good, but you have to like to do it, right? Right, oh yeah, definitely.
2: So we've got a couple questions. Um, the first one is from Shannon. Hi, Shannon, Shannon is one of our volunteers. Um, okay. So her question is, um, I'm personally quite concerned about two things that used to dominate children's lives and contribute immensely to emotional and interpersonal intelligence. Those two things are uh, spontaneity and free play and playing outside. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, So since COVID, I'm even more worried about how the virus has further reinforced not having these activities, especially among young and middle-aged children. Do you have any thoughts um, on how we can help parents feel more comfortable supporting these essential activities while remaining safe?
1: So, you know, things gonna change, right? And you can't say, hey, call up your friend and I'll drive you over there. It's just not happening now. Um, the playing outside should be able to happen. It's not uh, as communal, um, but your kids absolutely should be outside daily doing something. Um, they can hike if they're a little bit older, they can hike with a friend, You know, keep social distance, masks all of that, um, and it's a, it's a point I forgot to make actually while I was speaking, which is give your kids some control. Like all of us are feeling out of control. So it's a good exercise to say, you know, you got exercise, I don't want to exercise. Okay, well, what would you like to do? Uh, you know, maybe talk to my friend Well, talk to your friend and take a walk and stay six feet apart if you can build in a couple of choices over the course of the day, that's a good thing. We need some choices, our kids need some choices. Spontaneity, I, I completely agree with you. I think that has that will happen in the house. And um, the problem with it happening in the house is that kids learn on the outside what parts of spontaneity really work and what don't, right? That's the whole point of being with your peer group is, Um, Mom may say, uh, you know, I told the story about the girl with the sauce. Mom may say, you know, I don't think you should do this and I'm tired of calling it, but that girl on the playground will hear, you're afraid of sauce, that's really stupid. And that will have a much bigger impact on how she sees things. So that's not happening. Um, It's less the spontaneity then the impact of learning EQ, you know, the emotional intelligence side of what happens when that happens outside of the house. You can try and build some of that in within the house, but it will not have the same impact that it does among the peer group.
2: Um, I have another question that kind of plays into that—that um, that sort of, uh, you know, someone picking on someone else—and I, I think. One thing that we have seen so much as a big problem these days is cyberbullying. Um and I wonder if you have any thoughts um, on whether or not the the movement to online for learning will be an extra challenge mm-hmm. to children who are targets of bullies, or will it actually maybe shield them for some of from some of that? Just trying to like pull yeah. any like positive out of <laughs> out of the current moment?
1: No, I I actually think for some kids, um, gay kids in certain communities, fat kids, you know, there's a whole group of kids who tell me that they like it better uh, online that they get now that's really not a solution to bullying is to keep kids out of the classroom. But um, for some kids, this is a better alternative. Um, And I think parents need to be vigilant about cyberbullying um, in the same way they need to be vigilant about bullying uh, in the in the schoolyard so you should know what's going on with your kid online um, your kid may not want to share that with you um, I always used to fall back I raised three boys on that's actually my computer you're on so, I'm loaning it to you because I'm such a generous mom but I want to have access. I want to make sure that you're safe and not being harmed. And the the other thing Kansas is again we don't know. You know, it's sort of it's so tempting to say, well, you know, the research shows that this kid will do better online and this kid will do better. Maybe um and so I think we have to be open to the fact that um it's a very, very unknown, we're on an unknown territory. And even people who are experts are on unknown territory, which means you've got to be a little more alert to signs of distress. And for for kids, you know, most of us know what depression and anxiety look like. But in young kids, not so much, because the first signs usually of anxiety in a younger child are psychosomatic. headaches and stomach aches and not wanting to get out of bed. and I hurt or I ate. The first person I would suggest checking with is your pediatrician. You've seen two or three kids, your pediatrician has seen 3000. So if you're not sure about whether you should worry or not, um, check with your pediatrician Uh, And kids, both anxiety and depression looks a little different than adult um, depression. Adult depression is usually teary and sad. And um, kid depression, especially boys in adolescence can often look mad and pissed off and aggressive. Um, So if your kid is real clingy on one hand or real aggressive, I guess, you know what? As I'm thinking out loud, Any change, significant change in their behavior is worth taking a look at. Are you gonna see some change? Absolutely. Nothing gets diagnosed unless it's going on for two weeks. That's our baseline for diagnosis. But if you see some kind of change um, and you're not sure, talk to your pediatrician about it, or a friend or a teacher who knows that child really well, um, because it's gonna look a little bit different than adult depression and anxiety.
2: Um, I think that, you know, we as adults interacting with each other, we can kind of, you know, we, we analyze each other all the time. And I think there's, you know, we can see in each other sometimes that, uh, especially family, I think this is where I'm kind of pulling this from, <laughs> um, that so many adults have not dealt with the trauma that they had when they were children. Yeah. Right. Um, how does that play into the idea that we should, st- we should be exposing children to, Trauma, I imagine it's just the type of trauma that we're wait,
1: talking about. Wait, no, I don't think we should voluntarily <laughs> expose children to trauma. Or not,
2: not shield them from okay. it.
1: Well, wait a minute. There's okay. a difference between trauma and anxiety um, and challenge. So, no, I wouldn't recommend exposing children to trauma, although this is starting to feel like trauma. Um, I speak with Nadine Burke Harris who is the Surgeon General of uh, California and we had an interesting conversation about whether or not we're entitled to call this trauma uh, now. Mm, Trauma with a small t as opposed to trauma with a big t. So uh, you know let me be clear that um, I'm not suggesting that you know you abuse your children or you know let your uncle have And none of that. That's that's not good for kids under any circumstances. But challenge is. And, you know, challenge is what has made people feel good about their lives. Mastering challenge. I did that. I know how to do that. And it's um, protective because you're always going to have challenge in life. So it's not trauma. And are we in the middle of trauma? Because a component of trauma is the lack of control. So yes, we are experiencing, um, I'll use Nadine's definition trauma with a small t right now. And thank you for bringing that up. And for people who have had real trauma previously in their lives, this will be particularly challenging. So you know, if you know your husband or your wife or your partner or whatever, had trauma, it's going to kick off, it's going to trigger.
2: Yeah. I've definitely heard a lot of people referring to the trauma we're all dealing with. <laughs> um, I think that we also, you know, kind of shifting back to talking about school in particular, I think we've seen, you know, in this kind of apocalyptic time that is like revealing all of these inequities, schools failing kids um, to prepare them for adulthood and also government bodies failing schools to prepare them in any way for anything Uh, and just simply funding them. Um,
1: Well, not only not funding, but threatening to cut off funding if you don't send your child to school in the middle of, and and I I mean, you know, that's a whole horrible uh, discussion about, look, there's been five months to, to prepare. There's been no preparation, there's been no funding. Um, I think parents have some responsibility to write and talk together and make sure people know that this is as unacceptable as it gets in terms of misled government. Um, you don't wanna get me started on the government really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: my question was gonna be just more about like the social order, You know, do we all need to just reshift and like, uh, re-evaluate how much our society values education. I mean, it's, and how does, what what are the barriers to that? What, I mean, is this, do you see this as being a time that really brings that um, forward?
1: I think it's a great time, like I said, to pause and think about a reset. I mean, my thing about this very narrow challenge success got started because I'd seen so many kids over the years, with different talents and different abilities. And yet it was one kind of kid who was valued in the community that I lived in and across the country. I mean, I've spoken practically, feel like 400 schools, something like that. So I I think, look, we have a little more time. No matter, I'm working almost as hard as I did before, but I don't have to go to the airport. I'm not in Seattle, so I, <laughs> I'm sorry I'm not. I'd love to be in Seattle. I'd love to see what's going on in the ground there. But we do have a little bit more time to, to educate ourselves. Um, you know, I've taken some classes, diversity classes, because I just don't know enough, and I have the time to do it now. And the clarity about the bifurcation in this country between the haves and the have-nots is really unsustainable. It's unsustainable. Um, So, yeah, I do think it's the time. We're certainly doing it at my organization at Stanford. We're thinking about it. Everybody needs to be rethinking um, those things. And, you know, you see it so clearly now, like um, in San Francisco, the wealthy families. um, I heard that, uh, not Target, what's the Scandinavian? Ikea yeah. is sold out of like these long tables, because everybody's setting up a table in their backyard. So you can have six kids and a tutor. And um, that's not going to work to make those kids so much more ahead of the kid who doesn't have breakfast and can't get to school and the community's exploding and their parents are work. I mean, it's just not tenable. So yes, I think it's a great time to put some energy into thinking about those things. And also, I, I just wanna say something, because I, I often feel it's not the most popular thing, but I feel it so strongly. And it's probably because I've been through civil rights and women's rights and those things. The hard work starts now. That And, and this is not in any way to downplay the protests or anything like that. But the hard work. I used to work inner city um, uh, in New York uh, during community control, and it was after the first go-around of um, issues around education. And you know, I, like everybody, I was out in the street protesting. That was that was good. That needed to happen. What was hard was was going in and doing the work. So I think this is. I think we're in a period, an explosive period of anger and acknowledgement and all kinds of things we have to not lose that spirit um, and let it revert to the way of us
2: yeah i think that's a good word <laughs> um so i've got a question from amanda um she is asking what are your recommendations on how to respond to a teenager when they ask questions about the future such as when will school meet in- When will school meet in person again? When will sports be played again? Um, How do we soothe while also being honest and authentic with teens?
1: You know, teenagers after the age of 11 or 12 um, have the same cognitive capacity as an adult, which I know is hard to believe, (laughs) (laughs) but they do in terms of not just uh, better thinking they also have abstract thinking by the time they're past 11 or 12. it's why you can never teach uh calculus to a nine-year-old because they don't have that in place but you could teach calculus to a 12-year-old or 11-year-old 13-year-old most of us don't most of them wouldn't want to learn that but they have the capacity so i, I think in general you know the rule is um direct calm transparent honesty You don't know, none of us know. Um, And I think the worst thing you can do is prom, you know, uh, what is the thing under promise over deliver. So don't promise that they're going back and then be wrong. You know, you say, I don't know. And then it happens sooner. Great. Um, But I I think all of us need to be age appropriately transparent. That's what I would tell a kid. I don't know. And a teenager, by the way, is old enough to pose them a question like, well, what do you think the circumstances under which that would work um, would be? And do a little bit of finding out. You know, they're curious, teenagers are curious. That's my answer.
2: Um, So this question has been voted up to the top. Um, What are ways that you can Uh, repair communication with your child if you happen to respond to a situation with catastrophic language, or this says in a catastrophic way, but, you know, in a way that is not not necessarily positive. Right.
1: So um, you have to repair it. You have to go back and say, you know, catastrophic language is more disturbing if you're younger, if your child's younger. So you go back and say, you know, mommy made a mistake you know um, it, it's not the end of the world um, it's a period of uncertainty or you know the you're yelling at your kid about getting up too late then you're screaming or you're screaming and they hear you you know i mean the the, the modeling of going back and saying i made a mistake is I just think so valuable for kids. It teaches them to be able to say I made a mistake. And it also teaches them that like everybody's human and they will make mistakes um, and, and can expect to be greeted with kind of open arms um, after they make their mistake. So, you know, just go back and say, I'm sorry. And, and wait, and one more thing about that and um, propose an alternative so because that's the learning part for your kid is not just the apology but i could have done this instead i should have done this instead yeah
2: great um so i think um i'll I'll make this our final question um so i i have a friend who is really struggling with how to make their transition from getting ready for a regular day to, to moving to school work. Um, it used to be sort of built in, the transition was very obvious. You ate your breakfast and then you left the house and you were going to school. Um, but now it might look like just clearing the dining room table of breakfast and putting books on the table or something. Um, so do you have any uh, suggestions for transitional activities that might be helpful um, with particularly young kids to get them ready to be in the mindset of working?
1: Right. So, you know, you just gave a really nice example that, um, of uh, having breakfast and then clearing the table and then moving in. I think, I think having some structure, um, a lot of people I know have gotten uh, different kinds of bells. There are bells, I guess you can get on Amazon. That sound just like school bells, but you need a structure around that transition. It can't just be, well, now it's time to go to school. You know, you think about your child's regular life, there's that transition of getting to school, walking to school, driving to school, whatever it is. So I guess my suggestion is to build in a routine um, that might be something like a bell, you know, you clear the table, get your books, um, change into your clothes, maybe, you know, whatever the routine is, uh, take off your pajamas and put on your clothes, that would be a good one. Press your teeth. You know, some routine that makes the transition and leave some time in between because in regular life there's by the when your kid leaves the house it's forty minutes until they're actually sitting and doing their work. So I build in a half hour of transition time. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, Well, Dr. Levine, thank you so much. It's been a
1: really interesting
2: conversation.
1: Yeah, it is a tough time. I think, you know, one of the things I really do think is that people are kind of at the edge of their tolerance. You know, what I said about the brain being a prediction machine, I think we tolerated the lack of prediction. You know, some people had a harder time than others, but in general, I think people did okay. I think people are at the the end of their ability to tolerate this much uncertainty and conflict in the country. I mean, it's bad enough that there's a pandemic, let alone, you know, the craziness that's going on politically, the amount of hate and rage and inappropriate. It just, I hope we never see a time like this again. It's a very, very difficult time.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for your
1: optimistic oh, note.
2: <laughs> I know <laughs> it's hard to hard to end on, on a positive yeah. note, but yeah. um, but I will say, you know, um, buy Dr. Levine's book, support your local bookstore. That's a positive thing. Yeah, um, but thank you again, Dr. Levine, and I hope everybody yeah. has a great night. Thank you,
1: Candace. Thank you, everyone.
0: Madeline Levine is a clinical psychologist and the author of Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World. She gave this Town Hall Seattle talk on August 26th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org. Just click on the podcast tab. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.